Welcome to Education New Frontiers, a podcast about transformations in the field of education following the outbreak of COVID-19. I am your host, Zainab Chima. I'm a writer, an education enthusiast, and a professor at Florida Gulf Coast University. Today, we are joined by Anne-Marie Perez, Assistant Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at CSU Dominguez Hills. Anne-Marie specializes in Chicana feminist literatures and social movements detective fiction, and Harry Potter. She also works on intersections between digital pedagogy work and ethnic and cultural studies. Anne-Marie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm so excited to, especially to be here on, it's it's sort of a, a one in a hundred day because it's raining in Los Angeles, which always sounds like the start of a, a Raymond Chandler novel. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I know what you mean, and I miss the rain. I'm here in Florida, and we had the rainy season in the summer, and now mm. now it's rather dry, and I do miss the rain. Um, Anne-Marie, the first time I saw you was at a May 2021 online Zoom talk sponsored by the Modern Language Association. The talk was on online pedagogy, and this is right after COVID-19 had broken out, and we were figuring out what to do with teaching online. And in your conversation, one of the themes that came up was the importance of building joy and trust and community in teaching spaces, including in online ones. So my question for you is, how do we do that? What's changed in this murky post-COVID-19, but not really post-COVID-19 space we're all in? Yeah, I've had students tell me that synchronous online, and these are students that have gone part-time to school from community college, because I I teach in a program that's specifically for people who are working full-time while while trying to complete their degree. So they tend to be older professionals or they think that synchronous online is the best modality they've ever experienced. And they've, they've like explicitly told me and also my department chair of this. So that's been, you know, kind of mind bending for me as I've come to accept it. I guess on some level, I'm not surprised by the preference for um, synchronous online, because whenever I've tried to start a Coursera course, I just leave it in the middle. It's so hard to finish. Um, Anne-Marie, you've also talked really beautifully about the impact of bell hooks on your work. And bell hooks um, in in her books, including Teaching to Transgress, has talked about pedagogy and the relationship to freedom. So for, for you, how do you what does that mean? And how do you go about translating that to the classroom? It's hard for me to talk about Bell Hooks because she's been a presence in my um, education since I was an undergraduate. I was fortunate enough to hear her speak when I was a student at Ohio State. And I believe at the time she was at Oberlin, but I'm not entirely sure about that. I've always at least in my head, it believed in a liberatory politic of teaching of this idea of critical pedagogy. Bell Hooks has been incredibly important, um, especially listening to um, 
an audiobook recording of teaching to transgress while I've been out walking and that combination of the physical and, you know, her talking about dancing with, with her students. And um, I had this sense from her writing And it was my own experience that as I tried to create a more liberatory space in the classroom, the person I liberated was me as a teacher. And, um, and I, yes, I, I, I'm forever indebted to her work because of that. I really identify with that, Anne-Marie. I've, I felt that with each year that I've been teaching, and then reflecting on what I've learned as a teacher, it's not so much the content that I've taught my students, but it's me breaking down whatever presuppositions I held about what I should do as a teacher. So my question for you is, how can we make ed tech equitable? What are some ways we can integrate all this wonderful creativity and blended learning and new ways of teaching students without going towards that other spectrum? You know, I've, I've been thinking about the question of ed tech quite a bit, and it's, it's become for me like the word um, rigor. It's something that I've heard too much, and I have developed a negative association with it. And um, <clears throat> maybe it's, it's the um, suspicion I have about you know, raw capitalism, but I, I am unwilling as, as much as I can avoid um, using tools that are created in part without any thought of collecting, you know, the implications of collecting students' data And to the degree that I have to use them, you know, for example, I have to use Blackboard because that's our university's um, learning management system, content management system. Um, I, I, I think, honestly, it's none of my business if my students are accessing work at three in the morning or turning it in five minutes before it's due or, you know, whether or not they downloaded material or when, partly because I'm very aware of the fact that this software is very glitchy. And so this information probably isn't entirely accurate anyway. But I had the freedom to work at two in the morning when I was an undergraduate without my professors judging me. And I, so I don't know because I love technology. I mean, I am very much a bright and shiny tool when I discover something new. So, you know, I, I, I don't know, you know, I, I, I'm one of my, uh, one of the documents I have to work on this coming summer as I go up for tenure is making a plan for the next five years. And I, I want to move my, my department, but hopefully even, you know, my college at my university toward domain of one's own, which I think is 
kind of the opposite of that because I I also feel we shouldn't be teaching students tools that they can't use outside of education, you know, which is why I've kind of tended to use WordPress. And I did something at a workshop put on by, by the hybrid pedagogy group where they divided us into groups and had us read the terms of service of all of these different um, ed tech tools. And they were alarming. I mean, I find the terms of service of Turnitin, which print out to about 70 pages. I don't see how we can teach students respect for copyright when we're using a tool that has no respect for copyright. I can say that I, I probably don't know that many people including professors, including all my colleagues who use Turnitin, who've read all the terms of agreement. (laughs) So so you're speaking from a position of knowledge there. (laughs) Well, and, you know, I hadn't read them when I I was using it. After I did this workshop, I started reading, and I thought, this doesn't make sense, because I remember um, someone saying, tools are content. You know, electronic tools are content, and they meant it in the sense that we have to teach students how to use them, and we have to factor that time in um, to our syllabus. But even more than that, for me, you know, I realized not, not investigating a tool I'm using and what they're doing with student data it's like assigning a textbook a sight unseen, you know, which I know we've all had to do at different times. As someone who does talk the talk in terms of having a liberatory politic, I need to make sure that the tools that I'm using in my classroom, I mean, turn it in makes it so hard for students to get their own work off that site. They have to know the name of the file they used. You know, I don't know the name of a single file I used on a paper that I wrote, even in graduate school, let alone, you know, God, I barely know the names of my files when I'm looking for them on my own computer. Whenever I'm writing something, I have like 20 different versions of it, and it's called all sorts of complicated things, and then trying to find it is a big nightmare. There's been a lot of alarming statistics that came out just recently about the impact that that COVID has had on low-income and minority students. According Mm -hmm. to the stats, low-income and minority students are the the student populations that are dropping out of higher ed the most. So I'm curious if you've seen any kind of, you know, if you've seen this in your classroom or do you see this as a temporary thing and that's going to change when the, the pandemic subsides? Well, I don't know what my university's enrollment numbers are. So I know this on an anecdotal level. My students' communities, because I I am at a majority minority campus, I think like 80 some percent of our students are students of color. And it's even higher in my program. The majority of my students are women. They're they're majority Latina and African American, and um, you know they have families, and they're caregivers for children. They do elder care. You know, they, 
they are the linchpin of their families. So yeah, you know, they had to let go. They also, and this was true of my, my freshman, the year I was teaching freshmen, they've also been devastated by this. I mean, they've suffered enormous losses. I think we also, you know, and this gets to your previous question, a part that I, I left out in my answer is we also need, we need to look at accessibility and a friend of mine, another Chicana instructor at another institution, like me, lost her mother, not to COVID. I lost my mother during COVID, not to COVID, but to cancer. And we were talking about the weight of grief. We were also talking about, you know, teaching, teaching to transgress and um, pedagogy of the oppressed. And, and she said to me, you know, attendance policies are ableist as, and I'll leave the word out there so that you don't have to put an explicit on your podcast. Um, and, and I'm like, yeah, they are. Cause she said, you know, I had some days where my, my grief was too heavy. I couldn't teach. And, and, you know, I had students that lost a parent and both of their grandparents that were living in their home and, you know, are 19 years old. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how we reckon with these losses, especially someone like me who comes from an incredible place of privilege, who has been able to work from home, you know, keep my father safe. Friends of mine who have been dealing with um, accessibility needs their whole lives are probably like, hello, this has been an issue, (laughs) you know, forever. It's nice of you to see it now. You brought up the importance of online synchronous classes to to your student population. And you also talked about the importance of being human and feeling human in classrooms, because part of being human is that connection. Mm -hmm. So so my question to you, Anne-Marie, is um, how has COVID-19 changed your teaching? I've made probably 60 to 70% of my assignments in my class are either done or undone. And if I don't feel I can give students credit for work, then I give it back to them and explain what they need to do. And, you know, then they do it and I give them credit. And that's partly come out of my own experience of my mother's illness. My mom had pancreatic cancer And there were a lot of times I I had to write to editors and say, you know, I can't get this in now. I'll have it in in two weeks. And, you know, we talk all the time about deadlines, students needing to be prepared for the real world. But the fact is the real world bends when we're in crisis. And, you know, I, I was having a discussion about this with with a, a colleague who felt very differently and and said, you know, when students go into the real world, da, 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 da. and I'm like, well, for one thing, our students already live in the real world. <laughs> you know, this is the real world. Uh, you know, they weren't 
they have children. They're 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 all aware of the real world. They have letters. But in addition to that, I don't want my students to feel that they should be treated the way, say, Amazon treats their employees and be tracked metric by metric on keystroke. I I want them to feel they should push against that, you know, to to have their labor valued. Each time I do it, I'm terrified. You know, each time I make one of these changes, I'm like, this is when it's all going to fall apart. You know, I can read all of Sean Michael Morris's work or Jesse Stobel's work or, you know, all, all these people who I have a huge amount of respect for. But, you know, when I, bell hooks, obviously, but, you know, it's not going to work for me. And, and then when it does, and I'm like, I, I have this weight lifted off me and I no longer find reading students' work onerous because I'm not reading to justify a grade. I'm reading the way that I read a colleague's work of saying, you know, I really like this part, but here I just can't tell what you're saying. In your Emily talk, you also described your fascinating Harry Potter class and how you you divided students according to houses, like like in the Harry Potter books, and you mailed them like letters, like on stationery with the Hogwarts seal. And I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit about that. Sure, you know, and also I'm not a lit. Perf- I I have my degree in English, but my um. And I'm not a Brit lit person at that. My I do um, chicken X literature, uh, but what I do know are fan communities like that. I know that from my own fandoms, and I love I love online community. So that was the way the course was centered. And what I did was I sent the students a physical letter that that had the the website for we I'd created for the class, which was going to be our digital hub, and they were going to be blogging for it. And so we used that. We used um, Slack. And Slack was kind of our private place to communicate as a class. And um, the, the, the blog was the space for communicating with the public. And we, what I tried to do, because one of the things that's interesting about Rowling's work, in addition to the her her world building is that there the releases of the novels time with the emergence of web 2.0 of the interactive web and so harry potter fan communities track 
almost, I, I mean, I'm, I'm old, so I came out of Usenet, but Harry Potter fan communities track onto, you know, the history of America online, you know, the emergence of blog culture, the emergence of web-based bulletin board. And, and by emergence, I don't mean they didn't exist before, but their entrance into popular culture. And so you have these, um, these communities that are led by people who are 12, 13 years old, you have these fan fiction communities where people are organizing themselves as readers, some as writers, there's beta readers giving all of this feedback. It's in a brilliant way to teach writing. And I'm not, I'm not saying anything original in this, but this is true of a lot of fandoms. Harry Potter works really well. The generation I was teaching is gen, is is Gen Y, Gen Z. So they are not the Harry Potter generation. They are not the millennials that you know read these books as they came out. So hearing about that is also history for them. So I let students email me after they got the letter. They could email me between the time they got the letter and the first day of class to tell me what house they were in. Um, and I was fortunate in that, you know, a lot of people identify with different houses. And so I never had to say, you know, I'm sorry, all the beds in Hufflepuff are full. With all the different kind of learning lingo that's come out, we tend to forget about pleasure. And it's like the basic feeling of what connects us with literature, what connects us with the things we're reading, what connects us in the conversations we're having. And that's what makes a class memorable. Like when you think back, when I think back to classes I took in, took, you know, in, in my bachelor's, I'm like, you know, that memory is based upon pleasure. If I took pleasure in a class or not. So I really love that. That's really, that, that's just speaks to me in so many levels. Well, I'm always telling them, you know, because they'll, they'll say, oh, you know, I was watching such and such on TV. And, you know, this this is a really, you know, it seemed really gothic. I, and and I said, yes, you know, these sort of your your education is going to ruin you for popular culture <laughs> because you you see everything through a new lens. That's that's what. And, and so for me, yeah, I, I mean. I'd really feel terrible if it's like, oh yeah, I got an A in that class, but I'm never going to want to read any of X again. And I do realize it is a matter of taste because there were certainly things that I took as an undergraduate that taught me, I do not enjoy this. Mm -hmm. Anne thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you and uh, to have this conversation. Um, thank you for coming. It was great to talk to you too. And I'm sorry for going so long. I would do this all day if I could. It was such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much. 